0: This is really surprising because I think you were given a heads up of what we were going to be talking about. Some of you have looked ahead in First Thessalonians to see what section we're going to be in. And usually, if you want to grow a church, just talk about apocalyptic things. You know what I mean? Teach through the book of Revelation or something like that. Talk about the rapture, and you can grow a church. Uh, apparently not here. Uh, maybe, Maybe people knew how I was going to teach it. I don't know. But this is what we're going to talk about today. We're going to talk about eschatology today, because that's what Paul is getting into in 1 Thessalonians. And uh, if you don't know what that big, interesting word is, eschatology, it just means the study of last things. Okay, So you have theology, which is the study of God. You have anthropology, which is the study of man. You have veritology, which is the study of... This is for bonus bonus points, truth, the study of truth, right, and it goes on and on and on. eschatology is the study of last things and i and I understand that this is this is a pretty sacred thing that i 'm going to be treading on today for some of you. Um, I grew up in a church i didn't grow up in the church it, actually it wasn 't my parents' church. it was when I first really became a Christian and really Got serious about the Lord, the church that me and my wife in had this these essentials if you 've gone on our website, we have a statement of faith. Uh, we have a statement concerning what we believe, and they're really about the essentials of the Christian faith, right? like Jesus is the Son of God, like Jesus is the only way, like virgin birth, he died for our sins. He rose from the grave. Like these are all non-negotiable, like essentials of the Christian faith. But in this church we were in, like right next to those, you would have like the church is going to get raptured out of here before things get really bad. It was like this thing that was like an essential doctrine in the church. And that's what I was taught. I was taught to uh, to look at it that way and to hold on to it that way. And it actually became a staple of what I'm going to call this denomination, And um, so I I, I am going to apologize, but kind of not at the same time right from the get-go. I hope you understand that our goal here is not to protect something because it's what we were first taught. Our goal here is to be ongoing students and pursuers of truth. So that means that sometimes we have to look at something that we've held for years and question it or even walk away from it. If it does not line up with what God has clearly given us in his word. And that's what we're in the pursuit of here. Um, and that's actually my responsibility to you guys, right? Like I'm going to have to answer to dad one day about the stuff that I talk to you about, the stuff that I teach you is truth. And um, I already know that some of it ain't going to go well. So I'm like trying to clean it up as best I can. And uh, and, and so I, I want to be accurate with how I am expositing the word of God. And do you guys remember what that word expositing is? We talk about exposition when it comes to teaching the word of God, which just means to expose We are here when, even when you're at home, reading through the word of God on your own, the goal should be to expose or to exposit scripture, which means you're exposing what is there, what's clearly being taught. You're, you're mining that you're, you're extracting that out of the text to base truth claims on, not the stuff that's not clearly there. So don't read the white part of your Bible, read the black part of your Bible and then, and then make observations of truth truth. There, and we're going to attempt to do that today. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And I want to remind you really quick what's going on here. Um, There's obviously two letters that Paul ends up sending this church in Thessalonica. This is the first one, probably one of the first epistles he ever wrote. Okay, And um, basically, Paul is not addressing this section in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 to talk about a rapture. That's not what he's doing. This is where we get the doctrine of the rapture is right here in this very place. But he's not actually that's not his goal to the the Thessalonians when he wrote this was to talk about the rapture. It was to answer something else. So Paul came to Thessalonica on a second missionary journey. He was only there a matter of weeks we believe, according to Acts, right? Hardly enough time to unpack and teach all the mysteries concerning uh, the Christian faith. I actually need to get to Thessalonians since that's what we're teaching in. And um, part of what he most likely did talk about in those, those weeks that he was there in his short time was that Jesus is going to return for his church. Jesus is going to come back because that is an essential eschatology. Christ is coming back to collect that which is His and to glorify it once for all and to judge the ungodly. Right? This is a clear teaching of our Bibles. This is a clear eschatology. So I'm sure he talked about that stuff. We know that he talked about some of the things, some of the details surrounding the return of Christ because if we, if we skip ahead and cheat, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 5, he says, Do you not remember That when I was still with you, I told you these things. And he's referring to some of the signposts, right, that are going to occur surrounding the return of Christ. So we know that he went into some of it. However, it seems from what he's about to clarify here that they had some misunderstandings or some questions as well concerning things that surrounded Jesus's return. Like, what about those who have died in the meantime, What about believers that um, are not alive now and will not be alive at the return of Christ, at the second coming? Are they going to be disembodied spirits for all eternity, right? Are they just going to be second-class citizens in heaven? What about them in relation to us at the return of Christ? And what we're seeing here today is Paul's answer and clarification of how that's going to go down. That's what we're seeing here. So we're going to move through this section this morning, and we're actually just going to make six observations. That's how we're going to roll through this today. We're going to make six statements or observations based on what Paul is saying here. All right? So if you have a problem with me afterwards, take it up with Paul. So, all right, let's go ahead and read the text after I get some water. We're in chapter 4, 1 Thessalonians. We're going to take verses 13 to 18. Proceed those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and are left will be raptured, caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Six observations we're going to make. Number one, uh, if you are a note taker, I'll try to repeat these a couple times for you. Otherwise, you can go back. This will be recorded and you can hear it afterward. Number one, do not be ignorant or uninformed of eschatology, of last things. Do you see that there in verse 13? Paul does not want us to be uninformed or ignorant of last things or with our eschatology. What does it mean to be ignorant? It means to be untaught. It means, like he says here in the ESV, to be uninformed, which could also include being misinformed. Misinformed. Paul doesn't want us to be untaught, uninformed, or even misinformed when it comes to the coming of the Lord. He wants us to know and to understand how this is going to go down. In other words, eschatology matters. Eschatology matters. It's not unimportant. It's beneficial. And this is where Christians and denominations and many churches tend to to fragment and divide. Like I already said, I was in a church um, that took it to one extreme. Okay. And it's not just that they paid attention to eschatology, which is good because Paul tells us to do that, but but they actually spent all of their time trying to decode and defrag every detail of eschatology, which the Bible does not do for us, okay? So it was taken to a point um, to where it actually became unhealthy and was a reason why they would separate themselves from other churches, is because they had a detailed eschatology that they thought everybody else had to have and if you didn't have it you could probably you can just go worship somewhere else so there's this extreme that we can take eschatology to that it's not meant to go to but the other extreme is that we don't pay attention to it at all and i've been in one of those churches too where nobody ever talks about the things surrounding the coming of the lord it's one of those things that's completely taboo because I think because they knew that it's something that divides unnecessarily. And so the response to that is we're just not going to speak of it at all. We're just going to leave this thing asleep and not even consider it. And Paul would rebuke that according to verse 13. He would say, no, 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 you need to talk about eschatology. Eschatology is important, the things surrounding the coming of the Lord um, is important. And he goes into why in his next statement, our second observation, number two, a good eschatology gives us hope now. A good eschatology gives us hope now. That's the end of verse 13. The understanding of our Lord's return gives us, reminds us of, fills us with hope today. And I don't know how many of you need that, but I need it. I need hope today. Uh, Last week was not a good week for me. Uh, My life's fine. I'm spoiled rotten. There's just times that I'm sure you don't do this, get caught up in myself, and I'm the center of everything again, right? And, And I was just kind of at the end. I just filled with negativity, just about stupid little things. I had driven myself to that point where the world around me had just become altogether unimpressive to me. And I was just irritable, and I was without hope, and I was ready to just give the world a finger, you know what I mean? And be like, why even try? Why even try? Why do I even do what I do? Why should I even go on doing what I'm doing? And God had me here, in this text, preparing for this sermon where I'm looking at this over and over and over again, and by this I mean the return of our Lord, which reminds me and reminds you that things are not always going to be this way. Whatever it is you're going through in life, it's not always going to be like this. There's something altogether better that's coming. He's going to come and He's going to make right everything that's gone sideways in this world, including us and what goes on inside of us. And it was exactly the text that I needed to have my head buried in last week as I was my biggest fan in life and my biggest critic of the world, right? I needed to see and be reminded that what I feel right now, what I'm experiencing right now, what I'm going through right now is temporary. Jesus is coming to correct it all. He's coming to make all things new one day. This is why eschatology matters so much to the church is because it gives us hope now. It gives us hope now. And then he goes into an example of how it gives us hope now, and that is with lost, loved ones. I don't know about you, but if I have an enemy number one in my life, it's death. I hate death. Amen. Death stinks. It's a horrible thing. It's the, it's the removal of someone that we love from our lives, which seems permanently, permanent, unless you look at what Paul's saying here, is that for those who love Christ, it's not permanent. It's temporary, right? I had a call from my mom last week, and I didn't get the phone, so she left a message, and the message was that... Um, one of my cousins that lives in Chicago that's my, mom, my mom's age, uh, they've been um, just good friends for years. They've had this affinity for each other. Um, and she's just this wonderful, beautiful Christian woman that loves She's just a great example to everybody around her. And uh, she had a sudden heart attack, and she died. And I, I felt horrible for my mom when I got the message that I, I wasn't there to answer the phone when my mom called because I knew how much my mom loved Jean. This lady. And so I get on the phone and I call my mom back. And she's sitting in the middle of Sherry's having lunch, like a BLT or something, with my dad. Right? And I'm like, Mom, like, I'm, I'm sorry to hear about Jean. And she starts bawling. She actually started, like, she wasn't even, like, consolable. She just starts weeping heavily. And I can just picture this going on in the middle of the Sherry's as she's eating her food. And everyone's probably looking at her because it wasn't quiet. Right? And she had me on speakerphone. And she just starts crying and crying. And I said, Mom, Mom, can I read you something real quick? Because again, this is the text I was in. Right? I said, can I read you? And she kind of like got a hold of herself and calmed down and quiet, quieted down enough. But she's still crying. I can hear her crying. And I read her verse 13. We do not want you to be uninformed about those who are asleep that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. And as I'm reading this, I can hear her cry go from one of complete despair to like this whole different cry, like this, this happy cry. And she starts saying out loud in between like breaths of crying, that's right, that's right, that's right. She needed to know, she needed to be reminded once again that death is not a thing for those who are in Christ. It's different. It's not the same. I'm going to see my grandma again. I'm going to see that brother in the Lord that I lost two years ago again, that I was good friends with. I'm going to see him again. When I do memorial services or I sit at bedsides when people are about to pass away, that's, that's all I can think of, is, and that's what I say usually. I'll see you soon. Like right behind you, you know what I mean? Coming. I believe that. Do you believe that? Do you believe that Christ has secured that, that that's a reality for those who believe in who He is and what He did? That's our reality. And I want you to notice here that it does not say... It does not say that we do not grieve. We grieve. It hurts when people die. We have real feelings, real emotions, a real love for those people that God has given us. We're not robots and we're not superhuman. You and I grieve, but we do not grieve as others who have no hope. It's not to despair, right? One of the most amazing pictures to me in the Scriptures is when Jesus comes to the tomb of Lazarus. He knows full well that he's about to raise him from the dead. But what does he do first? He grieves. He weeps first. He knows he's about to see him again, but he weeps first. But not to despair, because he knows he's going to see him again. And at the end of the day, the Christian knows that other Christians that die in their bodies do not cease to exist. They just cease to be currently active in their bodies. That's the difference. They're asleep. Paul uses this descriptive here. They're asleep. That doesn't sound so bad. That sounds, that sounds a little better. They're sleeping, right? The early Christians had adopted a word for the burying places of their loved ones, and that Greek word was koimēterion Coimitarian, which means a rest house for strangers. It's a sleeping place. It's the same word from which we get our English word cemetery, right? So the, the word was used in that day for basically like inns or what we would call hotels today. So like a Hilton, a Ramada, a Holiday Inn, all places we go to what? Sleep, to spend the night. We go to a hotel when we're on a trip or a journey to sleep, and then we expect to get up the next day and continue on our journey. This is the same way that they looked at that place where they buried their loved ones in Christ. It's a hotel for the body. This is how the early Christians pictured this place. They believed and knew full well that at some point that body would wake up again. That it would have life again. And because of this belief, they did not grieve as others do who have no hope. Number two, a good eschatology gives us hope now. Number three, the resurrection is for all who believe in the resurrection. You're like, well, duh. Just needed to say it. The resurrection, the bodily resurrection of the dead, is for all who believe. In the resurrection. So, past, present, or future? Verse 14, which is the whole reason again why Paul is addressing this right now, is they 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 seem to have some confusion about what happens to those who have already died. So it doesn't matter whether you died pre-Jesus, like incarnate, his first coming, or post-Jesus, like us, after his incarnation, whether you die pre-return, second coming, or live right up into the return of Christ, the hope of the resurrection is for all who believe in the resurrection. And it's at this point that we must note that that hope of the happy ending of a bodily resurrection to everlasting life is not for those who try harder to be better. Do you see that there? We have to hit this. You know us. We have to hit this every time it comes up in Scripture. It's an important one. The hope of the bodily resurrection isn't for those who try harder to be better. It's not for those who lived a good life as a good person. It's not for them. The hope and the promise of a glorified body in the presence of Jesus is by a faith that is fully convinced that Jesus died and rose again. That's who it's for. That's how you participate in this event. He says there in verse 14, for since we believe, there's the qualifier. There's the qualifier. Since we believe, that's what allows us to participate in this event of the bodily resurrection that's coming at the return of Christ, is that we believe that he died and that he rose again. Those who can look forward to this and who get to participate in this get to do so based upon faith, not works. Faith, not works, not ethnicity, you don't have to be a Jew, not religiosity, not association. Grandma was a Christian and mom was a Christian, so I must be a Christian too, I'm in. No, there is no salvation through association in the Bible. It's not there. It's not by having a good church attendance. It's also not by having a bad one. Just saying. It's not by being registered conservative. It's not by being patriotic or a good nationalist. Right? It's not by feeding the poor or the hungry or volunteering in a warming shelter. That's not how you participate. It's by faith. By faith we will rise by our Lord to our Lord in the end. It's important to know. It um, doesn't matter when you lived. It's by faith in the resurrection. Right? You guys are familiar with Hebrews chapter 11? We call it the hall of faith. I think that's what it's oftentimes been labeled. And it's called that because the writer to the Hebrews goes all the way back and dips into the beginning. He starts in the beginning, this succession, this thread of those who had faith in something better, in a remedy for their sin, and a life that goes beyond this one. And he goes in chapter 11 of Hebrews and starts with Abel, and then goes to Enoch, And then goes to Noah. And goes to Abraham. And this is the whole point of that. Is it didn't matter when you believed that Christ was going to come and take care of your problem. It just matters that you believe. Those guys are in paradise right now. Absent from the body, present with the Lord. But one day, that spirit is going to be reunited with a new glorified body. Theirs. And we're going to be with them. But them first. Them first. We're going to see that here in a minute. As simply as I can put it, here's why you and I have hope and will participate in the bodily resurrection. Because we know somebody who went into the grave and came out. Amen? You and I will be a part of the bodily resurrection at the end because we know someone who went into the grave and came out. Better yet, we are known by someone who went into the grave. And came out. We are loved by someone who went into the grave and came out. Therefore, when we go into the grave, he will not leave us there. We will come out because we belong to him. And he loves us. And he died for us. And he rose for us. So that death cannot hold us. Number three, the resurrection is for all who believe in the resurrection. Number four, those who are alive when Jesus returns. This is where it's going to get a little weird. Okay? Um, so just like hold your remarks and your comments and all that stuff till afterward. Number four. Those who are alive when Jesus returns will not be the first to be with Him bodily. I said it. Verses 15 and 16. In other words, the rapture of the existing church or those who are alive on earth when Jesus comes back, does not come before or precede, like Paul says here, the bodily resurrection of the dead, the sleeping. That means the movies lied to us. And the book series lied to us. Paul's saying something different. Think about this. If what Paul is saying is true, and obviously it probably is, um... Because anyway, nonbelievers living at the time of the rapture of Jesus's return will not experience a sudden vanishing of the church, but they will experience a George Romero film where the graves open up and the dead come out, no longer dead. I mean, that'll get your attention. That's pretty hardcore. I mean, it'll be too late, but that's heavy. And that's what Paul's basically saying here. The aha moment is not what happened to Grandma? She disappeared last night. You know what I mean? Which is what I was taught. The aha moment is what's up with Grandma? She's been dead for 20 years and she ain't dead anymore. There she is. The aha moment is that people that were dead are no longer dead but changed and they are sending into the clouds to be with Christ. And and this is really what the challenge that I was faced with when I started looking at these texts in a clear, natural way from the eschatology that I was first taught. Because according to what I was taught, the rapture was supposed to come before the bodily resurrection. Either seven years before it or three and a half years. Okay, if you're if you're a mid trib. Nobody's a mid trib anymore, but if you are, I just want to include you, make you feel good. Okay? Either way. The rapture is supposed to come before the bodily resurrection, but we're actually seeing the opposite clearly taught here by Paul. That the bodily resurrection of the dead precedes those who are alive and remain and therefore need to be caught up bodily. So if if we don't allow Paul to be right and we want to hold on to this other thing, then we have to accept... We have to accept two comings. We have to accept two raptures. We have to accept two last trumpets. We have to accept two bodily resurrections. And I found out that biblically, I just couldn't do it. According to a pre-tribulation rapture view, there's a lot of death that occurs after the rapture of the church, right? Have you ever looked at Revelation chapter 7? John gets caught up into the throne room of heaven and he's being shown around and at one point he's shown this multitude that he could not number. And the angel comes to him and he's like, who are these? And he's like, what do you mean asking me? Like, you, you know. Like, he plays it off like, come on. Like, we all know who they are. Like, he doesn't know. It's like, you know. And the angel says, these are those who came out of the great tribulation and have washed their robes white. It's this multitude that couldn't be numbered. So there's a lot of death, a lot of death that's going on after a pre-tribulation rapture. But Paul nowhere allows for this in his eschatology. In fact, he speaks plainly in First Corinthians chapter 15 that death is done when the bodily resurrection takes place. Listen to this. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, I'm just going to start in verse 50 again. You can jot this down. I tell you this, brothers, <clears throat> flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. So we can't get in this way. We cannot get into the club dressed the way that we're dressed in these bodies because they're imperfect. They're not outfitted for it. We need new ones, like kind of like what Jesus had when, he, when the, st- the stone was rolled away and he and he, and he lived again, right? It, w- it was the same but different. Remember that? Like Thomas was able to like physically touch him, and yet when he entered the rooms where the disciples were, he didn't use doors or windows. Like it, 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 hybrid, whole different deal, right? Like we need that, and Paul's saying that here. He says, behold, 1 Corinthians 50, continuing, I tell you a mystery... We shall not all sleep. And listen to the language here as I go through. It sounds parallel. It sounds identical to what he's saying to the Thessalonians. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, how fast is that? It's quicker than a blink, right? Like, it's as fast as it takes light to move across the surface of a pupil. Like, it's fast, right? In the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet... For the trumpet, which one? The last one, shall sound, and the dead in Christ shall be raised imperishable, and we then, those who are alive, shall be changed. Puts it in the same order. Saying the same thing. The bodily resurrection of the dead happens, and then those who are alive are changed and join them. All bodily He goes on in 54 there in chapter 15. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written. You ready? Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? It's over at that point. It's done. When Jesus raises the dead and changes those who are alive, the game is over. Death is over. Satan's over. Sin is over. The game is over. It's won and it's done. Hallelujah. It's over at that point. If this is true, if Paul is correct, and again, I think he is, because there's a bigger author than him here, then the rapture that we have in our Scriptures is the catching up of the saints bodily at the resurrection. Here's the hint. If you can place the bodily resurrection in your Bible, then you have the placement of the rapture in your Bible. I'll just say it that way. Not two events, but one. So number four, those who are alive when Jesus returns, will not be the first to be with Him bodily. Okay. And number five, what did I say? I'm doing six of these. Number five, the rapture catches us up to meet Jesus where? In the air. The rapture catches us up to meet Jesus in the air. Verse 17, it has been argued by many proponents... In fact, I used to do this. I used to make this statement to other people with the pre-tribulation rapture that logically it's just silliness to think that Jesus is going to like kind of come back uh, and then catch up his church uh, just to take them back down again. Like he's going to pull them up to meet him just to go back down. And my question now is like, why? Like, why is that silly? You know what I mean? Like, there's nothing silly about it. The language would actually indicate that this is the case. So, so the phrase in 17, to meet to meet is ice appentesis for a meeting is what it means, for a meeting. Now, it gets really interesting, this little phrase, this uh when we discover that that word is only used in two other places in the New Testament, and I want to read to you their uses really quick. You can jot these down if you want to look at them them later. One is in Matthew 25. The kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish, five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. And as the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight there was a cry. Here is the bridegroom. Come out to Apentesis to meet him, and then the the five that had oil in their lamps went out to meet him, and then they went together back in to where they were waiting It's interesting the other one this one's totally different is in the book of Acts the last chapter of acts uh, chapter twenty seven um, are there twenty seven chapters in acts or twenty eight there's twenty eight all you got to do is think of the Acts 29 network, and then that reminds you that there's only 28. Because they, you see what they did there, <clears throat> the continuation. Acts 28. Let's see if I can find where I'm at. 14 and 15 says this. Uh, there we found brothers and uh, were invited to stay with them for seven days, and so we came to Rome. And the brothers there in Rome, when they heard about us, came out as far as the forum of Apias and three taverns to Apenteos, to to meet us, um, basically, is what that means. So those are the uses. So my question is, what do these two texts that are completely different from each other as far as what they're saying have in common? We have an example of this meeting in each case of people being somewhere, coming out of that place to meet somebody, and then going back into that place with them. That's what they have in common. When my parents, we moved up here, me and Carrie, when we were young, we were newly married. Um, We didn't have any family up here. And so the only times we would really see our parents is when they would come up to visit, uh, because they had money, so they would come up to visit once in a while. But it would be like once a year if we were lucky. For them to come up and we could not wait for that time each year when my parents would come up to visit right and so we'd be talking on the phone as they're traveling and we'd hear how far away they were or how close they were or whatever right and when we knew that they were close uh we would be watching out the window for them right to pull up and when they pulled up we were never like oh cool they pulled up no we were like out the door we were at the car Like we went out to meet them because we had so much excitement. There was so much love. There was so much to celebrate that we were finally together and then together we would go back in. How much more with Jesus? How much more with Jesus? How much more is His church excited to see Him in the air? Coming for them. Arriving. When it's finally here when He's finally there, we finally get to see Him, know Him, be with Him face to face. You and I are going to come out to meet Him in the air, in the clouds. And it's going to be glorious. And it's going to be celebratory. And we're going to be together. And we're then going to all... We're going to come back down together. Because He's going to change this whole globe. There's going to be a new earth. And we're all going to inhabit it Forever together so it's really not that weird of a thought when you think about it it's not a weird thing to go out to meet somebody just to come back in that's all probably spent entirely too much time on that but i thought it was an interesting phrase do you guys remember the prodigal's return the same thing you know of course this time it was it was with the father the father of the prodigal it says in the text that he sees his son coming back afar off, down the road. And what does he do? He leaves his house. And he goes to that son and he embraces him. And then they come back together. They're home together. That's all we're talking about here. Number five, the rapture catches us up to meet Jesus. Where? In the air. Number six, finally. Finally. This eschatology exists, and I do mean this when I say that. This eschatology <clears throat> exists to be an encouragement to the church. Verse 18. It exists to be an encouragement to the church. What's the goal of eschatology? What should, be a, what should a biblical eschatology produce as we talk about it, as we look forward to it together? as we listen to it being told to us again, like we're doing today, what should it produce? Is it there for us to argue who has a better one? Or who has a more intellectual one? Or who has a more preferable one? Or who has a more historic one? Or who has a more complicated one? Is it there for us to divide over and to separate and fragment the church over, to create separate and more denominations over? It exists for us to encourage each other, to edify and build up each other as we see that day approaching. I want us to notice Paul's words here are important because he doesn't say in verse 18, terrify one another with these words. I don't know if that's been your experience with some Christians. It has been with mine. In fact, I used to be that dude that go around like finding ways to like scare people into thinking what I think. I think a non-believer should be scared if we're talking about non-believers. They should be scared. What's going to be the best day for you and I is going to be the worst day for them. And they need to know it. Right? But here in the assembly of the saints, eschatology is to encourage and to build up. It's It's to push us all forward. People can get so caught up, oh, the new world... The New World Order, the One World Order is happening. We, we know it's going to happen. Like The Bible said that a long time ago. Like, okay, right? But instead, a lot of times it's like, yeah, load your shotgun. You know, the New World Order is coming. Like, dig your bunker out. Why? The mark of the beast is this. The mark of the beast is that. Be careful. You might take it. No, you won't. I'm sorry. Let's just get this out of the way. If you belong to the Lord, you ain't taking it. I don't know how we don't understand that. Like, He's bigger than whoever it is that's coming. And Jesus tells the Father, I'm pretty sure, in Matthew chapter 6, of all that the Father has given me, I ain't going to lose one. I'm not going to lose one. So you're not going to make a stupid decision and screw up and, oh my gosh, wake up the next day, I took the mark. I can't believe I did that. No, you ain't. You are already marked. You were marked First. By the one who's bigger than everything else. Do you understand that? You're okay. If you know him, you're okay. right? We're not not here to be afraid of those things or guess at those things. He says, encourage, establish, build up one another in these words. We who have this hope have a great hope. We have a blessed hope. Because the glorification of our bodies in the presence of our Lord is the blessed hope of the church. That's the blessed hope of the church. That Jesus wins is the hope of the church. And he wins. He doesn't lose. He wins. So so here's the deal. Like If I'm going to boil this thing down, if there's something I guess I want us to really grab onto with what Paul's proclaiming here with eschatology, it's this. Our blessed hope as the people of God is not found in that we're going to escape a coming period of tribulation. Our blessed hope is that when he appears, we will be changed in the moment, in the twinkling of an eye, and glorified in his presence once for all. That's the blessed hope of the church. And these are the words that you and I need to speak to each other. This is the focal point of a biblical Christian eschatology. It's not when this happens or when that happens or if we can get out of hard times. Because I'm pretty sure looking at the history of the church, if you and I are Christian and we follow Jesus, you signed up for hard times. I, I prefer to escape. Like, I, I, I would rather escape hard times. So, like, it's, like, I would prefer this view. But is it Biblical. No, our blessed hope is that is that after this world does whatever it chooses to do to us because we're Christ followers, he wins and he restores everything once for all. Right? Go ahead and send your emails versus objections to Pastor David at the door3r.org <laughs> Be nice. Here's my challenge for us this morning just in closing to humbly put aside our presuppositions and prayerfully consider what Paul is saying in this text. That's all I'm asking. God and Paul doesn't want us to be ignorant concerning our eschatology. Our eschatological view should be one that gives us ultimate hope and encourages us when we think on it. It's not one that breeds fear and question and division and skepticism and worry, which is what's coming out of so many Christians these days, are those characteristics. And I don't get it. Christians have become so caught up, pun pun intended, in the world's current events and politics, and the fruit in the ones that do that always seems to be the same. Negativity, divisiveness, fear in Christians. And and I don't remember seeing any of those on the list of fruits of the Spirit. They're not things we ought to be walking in. If we're walking in them, Something's wrong. That tips us off. The Christian actually sleeps on the boat. I've talked about this before, and it's just true. And you guys all know the story. The Christian sleeps on the boat. Jesus taught us this. When the world is raging around, and it's going to get worse. It's bad right now, and it's going to get worse, people. Everything in this world is going to get darker and uglier and more wicked it's going to get worse. So, so the waves that are hitting the side of the boat and that are coming over the top of the boat are going to get worse. It's going to even start breaking the boat apart. But what's Jesus found doing? They get mad at his disciples. Get mad at him because he's just sleeping. The boat's falling apart, and Jesus is sleeping. And they're like, "What's up, dude? Like, how can you sleep at a time like this? This is no time to sleep." And what does he say? O you of little faith. Because he knows how the story ends and he also knows the one who was bigger than the storm. That's why you and I can sleep right now on the boat that we're on. No matter how bad it gets is because we know the end of the story, which is our blessed hope. And we know who's bigger than the storm that's going on around us. Lord, thank you so much for texts like this that um demand our attention forward it's so easy to get caught up in the present of where we live and how we live now but 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 wow um you want us to look forward to the end of the story to be reminded of the end of the story because it affects how we live now and so i thank you so much for again preserving this text And then for having Paul speak clearly about the things that you clearly want us to know. And it's all to your glory. We cannot wait for that day that is coming when we're not standing around here talking about, imagining what it's going to be like, but when we will be living it in your presence. We ask you to come quickly. In Jesus' name, amen.